Hi, I'm Vashi Kapelos, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, January 14th. On the show this week, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. That's how Canada's foreign affairs minister is describing the current state of NAFTA negotiations with the U.S. What is Christian Freeland's plan B if President Trump pulls out of the deal? We'll ask. Then, Canada is set to co-host an international summit in Vancouver this week on the North Korean crisis. What diplomatic options are on the table to de-escalate the growing threat? Plus, a conversation with outgoing Ethics Commissioner Mary Dawson. What she really thinks about Trudeau's Bahamas vacation and what advice she has for her successor. But first, will he or won't he pull out of NAFTA? That is the question everyone is asking as Canada prepares for another round of NAFTA negotiations in Montreal later this month. How worrisome is the unpredictability and what does it mean for you? In a moment, we'll ask Foreign Affairs Minister Christian Freeland, but first, here's your West Block primer. Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. The quote, worst in this case, is no NAFTA. If Donald Trump pulls out of the deal, what does it mean for Canadians? Foreign trade amounts to just over half our country's GDP. Three quarters of Canada's exports go to the U.S. Manufacturing and automaking are a huge part of that, and jobs could be at risk. About one of every 10 Canadians is directly employed by a manufacturer. Then there's your investments. Even just the speculation last week Trump was going to withdraw from NAFTA erased $2 billion from General Motors' stock value in less than 90 minutes. And joining me now from London, Ontario, is Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, Christian Freeland. Minister Freeland, it's great to have you back on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, last week, Reuters reported that Canada was expecting President Trump to pull out of NAFTA imminently. Was that story correct? Um, you know, what I can tell you, Vashi, is we take President Trump uh, and the U.S. administration at their word. And we've heard repeatedly, and, and these have been some very public statements uh, from the U.S., that the U.S. is considering invoking Article 2205, which would be the six-month notice for withdrawal from NAFTA. And so I think it's our responsibility as a government to take those statements very seriously and to be prepared for every eventuality, which we are. Having said that, uh, my approach is to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. We're now preparing for the Montreal round of NAFTA negotiations. That will be at the end of this month. And I think that provided there is goodwill from all parties, uh, we could make some real meaningful progress in Montreal. And, and that is what I'm working towards and hoping for. And I'll ask you about those negotiations in a second, but I just want to be clear because that report caused a ripple effect in the stock market. Were you expecting earlier this week that there would be some kind of imminent withdrawal from NAFTA? I, I've already explained, Vashi, what our expectations are. And I guess another way of putting it might be to say we are prepared for the unexpected. We expect the unexpected. Uh, we have heard, and, and this is very public information because the statements have been made publicly, uh, we've heard repeatedly from the U.S. administration that the administration is considering invoking Article 2205, which would give the U.S. a right after six months to withdraw from NAFTA. And so it's only prudent and appropriate for us to be absolutely prepared for that. Having said that, uh, we also really believe in approaching the negotiations and the negotiating table with positive intent. We are working as hard as possible for a positive outcome. 
and we have now our, our next round uh, of the negotiations will be in Montreal. Uh, we think there are opportunities, provided there is goodwill on all sides, to make some good progress in Montreal. And, you know, having said all of that, while we really believe NAFTA can be modernized, uh, we think NAFTA already is a great deal for Canadians and Americans. Was putting that information out there this week a negotiating tactic? Because now we've learned from President Trump that, or at least it sounds like he'll wait until after the Mexican election. I think that that is a really constructive position. Uh, Canada's view about these negotiations has always been that while we are prepared to work as hard, if not harder, than any of the other parties, we do our homework, we come to the table ready to go. We really appreciate that trade deals and trade negotiations take a lot of time, and that's particularly the case with the modernization of an agreement like NAFTA. Canadians might not appreciate the NAFTA free trade area is the biggest trading block in the world. And making changes to it is something that has to be done really carefully and with real attention to detail. So I think that taking the time that it takes to have a good deal really makes a lot of sense. And, and I was glad to hear the president saying that this week. But just to re-ask the first part of my question, because I don't think you answered it, were those stories a negotiating tactic? Uh, again, Vashi, as I've said, um, I'm very clear in all the public comments I make. And, you know, what I've said from day one is that we are always prepared uh, for everything. And in this particular negotiation, one of our counterparties, the U.S., has been very public about the fact that it is considering the possibility of invoking Article 2205, uh, which would give the U.S. the right after six months to withdraw from NAFTA. And so we are very prepared for that at any moment, as I think Canadians expect us to be. Uh, we're ready for all eventualities. But again, I also want to emphasize uh, that we hope for the best, even as we prepare for the worst. And I think that there are a lot of good reasons to believe, again, provided there is goodwill from all parties, provided everyone comes to Montreal with a cooperative mindset, uh, for us to make uh, some meaningful progress. When you say that your government is preparing for the worst, does that mean no NAFTA? Well, certainly, if I think we need to look at all of the options stage by stage. And I think, you know, the first step would be invoking Article 2205, which would be the six-month notice of withdrawal. But that is a step before withdrawal. Um, for the U.S. or any country to actually withdraw, you would then need to exercise that right after the six-month period. And I think there is a lot of uncertainty about what would happen in that six-month period. Again, to give Canadians a sense of things, this would be the first time that the U.S. has actually withdrawn from a free trade agreement. So there is a lot of uncertainty about what would actually happen. Okay, thank you very much, Minister. Appreciate your time. We just heard from Foreign Affairs Minister Chrystia Freeland, who on Tuesday will co-host a ministerial meeting with the United States to try and find a diplomatic solution to the North Korean crisis. 
but China and Russia will not be there, which raises questions about just how much can be accomplished without these two critical players. Joining me now to discuss the summit's prospects are Marius Grinius, Canada's former ambassador to North and South Korea, and in Washington, Bonnie Jenkins, who worked in the State Department under the Obama administration. Ms. Jenkins, I'm going to start with you. In the report that you wrote for Brookings, you said China and Russia should be involved. Does the fact that those two countries are not attending this summit diminish the significance of the meetings? Well, I think it's important, of course, to always be discussing issues regarding North Korea's nuclear program with China and Russia because they have been part of the, the past six-party talks and clearly have an interest in the issue. However, I also believe that the uh, discussions that are going to be taking place are going to be very important, even if China and Russia are not there. Um, China has reported that they recognize that they will be getting a readout of the meeting, so they do uh, will be, they they do recognize that while they're not there, uh, that they will be uh, getting a readout, and so they realize at least that that's going to be important for them. But it will be important regardless because it will give an opportunity for the countries who are at the meeting to discuss issues related to the nuclear the nuclear situation in North Korea and other issues of importance uh, regarding North Korea, not just the nuclear situation, but they can also look at some of these other issues dealing with chemical or biological issues or even um, transit of illicit materials. So it's an opportunity to really get together and have a discussion, have a unified front, and also to look at other possibilities and options to address the situation in North Korea. Uh, Mr. Grinius, do you think we have to sort of manage expectations about this summit? Is it significant to you that those two countries won't be there? It's, um, it's not particularly uh, significant uh, from my perspective. I mean, it is truly a, an eclectic uh, group of people. And uh, collectively, I think there'll be the opportunity to indicate, con convey all the concerns that, uh, that we have with, uh, with North Korea's uh, nuclear program. And certainly, it's, uh, the primacy of uh, diplomacy will be the emphasis, I think, uh, in terms of uh, other options who may, that may uh, not be as good, like military options. What, is, uh, what I have found with uh, China and uh, Russia not being there, it's almost as if um, they're not happy and they've, they've expressed uh, their, uh, their unhappiness with that, uh, with that uh, meeting. But uh, my suspicion is that, uh, in actual fact, any meeting about North Korea where they do not uh, participate, where they do not have a veto or a threat of a veto, uh, makes them unhappy. And uh, certainly from my perspective, they have a lot more to do to implement uh, the UN sanctions that are supposedly in place. When the meeting was first organized, things were at a, you know, a very tense point with North mm -hmm. Korea. In the past week, we've seen some developments. Yes. For example, North Korea is sending athletes to the Olympics. They're embarking on military talks with South Korea. Um, does that change the nature or change how consequential what could be coming out of this meetings are? And Canadian officials seem to kind of dismiss them in my conversations as small signs. Do you agree? And not really. It's uh, it, again. It'll be a very, very interesting um, opportunity for for discussions, in the sense that um, I expect that uh, South Korea's foreign minister Kang Kyung Hwa will be there, and she will be able to give a briefing in terms of what uh, the North-South talks were like in Panmunjom last Tuesday, 
and uh, also I think have the opportunity to say here's what South Korea uh, the, uh, the the the, uh, the I think the key uh, uh, play, player in all this um, thinks as in terms of uh, steps ahead and and what have you. So again, it'll be um, an interesting conversation, even though Russia and China are not going to be there. And Ms. Jenkins, another key player, of course, is the U.S., who will be represented by Rex Tillerson. Even if there is a show of real solidarity and support for a diplomatic solution that includes Mr. Tillerson at the end of this summit, how much weight do you give that, given we know there's a disconnect between Mr. Tillerson and Mr. Trump, and given that we know Mr. Trump is about as unpredictable a leader as it gets? Well, I think we still have to work within the situation that we're in. Uh, we are aware that there has been a disconnect, as you said, between Tillerson and Trump. And there is some unpredictability, of course, coming from the White House on, on these issues regarding diplomacy in North Korea. However, does, that does not uh, negate the fact that we still need to have these kind of discussions. We still need to be promoting diplomacy. It's good that Secretary Tillerson is going to be going there and promoting it, even if there's been some rumors about his own job. So despite all of that, I think we still need to be moving forward, doing these diplomatic uh, negotiations or, or promoting these diplomatic negotiations, doing what can be done to develop a, a strategic approach to how we adjust North Korea that leans on diplomacy very heavily. And then we'll have to see what happens with what comes from the White House. But we can't let that pretty much dictate what's going to happen on the side of trying to promote diplomacy. What do you read in, Ms. Jenkins, to some comments coming from the Prime Minister, or at least from a read, or sorry, the President, from a readout uh, last week in which he said he was open to sitting down at some point uh, and talking? Do you give a lot of credence to those comments? Well, I mean, something that uh, Secretary Tillerson has been saying from the very beginning is that there was always an open door to negotiation. There was open and always an open door to diplomacy. Of course, we've had some questions as to whether that's really the case, but there's always been a part of the U.S. government that's been saying we, we want to have diplomacy backed by strong military options. I think it's great if uh, President Trump is saying that he's open to negotiations. Of course, he's going to continue to say that those negotiations will have to focus on the option that uh, and the need for North Korea to denuclearize, something that North Korea has said it doesn't want to do. But it's still important that, uh, that we hear that from the president, uh, President Trump, and hopefully he will follow through on that. And it's important that Secretary Tillerson continue to do his job, which is diplomacy, uh, to lead to some kind of solution to the situation. And moving Mr. Grenius from the U.S. role to Canada role, Canada's role, it seems like there is a, at least desire on the part of the government to provide some leadership in this area, Canadian leadership. How limited is that by the fact that we, I mean, you were one of the last people to represent our country to North Korea. That, that diplomatic relationship was suspended in 2010, and that decision has not been reversed. Should it be reversed? I'm, um, I'm fully uh, supportive of um, a total reversal of that. Uh, we have to, I believe, be there in Pyongyang um, at the highest level uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, to see for ourselves what's going on there and not to just rely on others, albeit friends and allies, but uh, it's very important for, for us to see what's, uh, what's happening. The other element, of course, is uh, the importance of conveying Canadian concerns, whether it's about uh, nuclear 
nuclear weapons or uh, the terrible human rights uh, record that uh, that North uh, Korea has, or other bilateral issues. Uh, we had to to deal with a, a very sensitive uh, consular case, and it was only thanks to Sweden and uh, trips by a Canadian um, representative from our, our embassy in Seoul, but a lower one, that made things happen. And again, that's uh, sort of second-hand uh, diplomacy that um, uh, has to be upped. Notwithstanding the fact that uh, the United States has said, hey, <clears throat> we should, everybody should cut down on their diplomatic relations, but I bet they haven't said that to the United Kingdom or India or Germany who have embassies there. I'm not advocating an embassy, but I'm am advocating uh, regular visits. I just have a few seconds, but really quickly, was it a mistake to suspend the program in the first place? I think it, uh, I think it was. There were reasons for it, uh, the sinking of a South Korean and naval vessel, but uh, diplomacy works uh, best when you talk to your enemies, your future, your possible enemies, like, like we did with Soviet Union or China after the Tiananmen massacre. Okay, we'll have to leave it there, but thanks very much, Mr. Grinius and Ms. Jenkins for your time. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Last week, Mary Dawson stepped down after serving as Canada's ethics commissioner for a decade. Her last investigation was her most significant. She found Prime Minister Justin Trudeau guilty of breaking ethics rules. I sat down with Dawson on one of her last days in the office. Have a listen. Okay, thanks so much for joining us, Ms. Dawson. I appreciate you being on the program. Congratulations on your official retirement, your second <laughs> retirement, really, I should say. Yeah, thank you. Um, I wanted to start off by asking you about uh, the report that you finished at the end of the year and that you made public, the investigation into the vacation the Prime Minister took uh, mm -hmm. to the Aga Khan's private island. Mm -hmm. When was your final report delivered to his office? I think it was the 18th of December. So he had a couple of days before it became public. No, no, it was the same day. Oh, it was the same yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Usually they're they're delivered, uh, and they're given an hour or two to kind of, uh, and they're given a heads up the night before, but that is coming. But they get about two hours, an hour and a half, something. So no special treatment for the prime minister. <laughs> no, <laughs> none whatsoever. What was you? You interviewed him on two occasions. Yes. What was his? How would you describe his demeanor in those interviews? Oh, he was very pleasant. No problem. Yeah. And cooperative, forthcoming. I mean, yes, he answered the uh, fulsomely the questions that I asked him. Uh huh. And when it comes to, I mean, I've heard your testimony. I've heard you talk before about this investigation. Uh, it was the lengthiest one that you're, you'd ever done. Is the longest correct? report. The longest. Almost report. twice as long as the nearest longest. Yeah, it was very. It, there was a lot of aspects to it. You know, there was I think seven provisions I was looking into. Your findings were very significant insofar as they were about the Prime Minister. Did the weight of that weigh on you during the investigation? How big of a deal did you think it was? Well, I thought it was important. I mean, the Prime Minister's the Prime Minister, and uh, I was careful with it, but I'm careful with all my reports. Did, it, did, did you lose any sleep over it? Was it sort of, like, did it feel bigger than anything else that you'd done? Um, well, it was, it, was, uh, there was, it was more complex than most of them that I'd done. Uh, but it was, um, no, I, I, I sleep at nights, actually. It wasn't, wasn't a problem for me, but, uh, I, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting. It was complex. Many of the headlines that came out of your report were that the prime minister broke the law and that it was the first ever prime minister to do so. 
Do you think that's a fair description of the conclusions you reached? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, the, the rules change over the years, and it's only been, uh, you know, 20 years or something since we've had rules in this area. Um, I, I had a letter from a school kid one time asking me what, what about something that John A. MacDonald had done, and I wrote back and I said, well, you know, if he'd been under this act, he probably would have been found to have contravened too. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, in a sense, he may be the first prime minister uh, that's actually been found to have contravened, but, but that's because the rules haven't been around that long. Right. When you were um, making your decision in this, I, I read an interview recently that you did where you said that you went out with a bang. Uh, did you consider, was the timing of this, was this something you wanted to get done before your time I very badly it. wanted to get done. I, I really didn't. I don't like leaving things unfinished. And uh, I had been working on it for some time. It wasn't extraordinarily long, the time that I've been working on it, actually. It, it took almost a year, but a number of cases have taken almost a year. But um, I thought I'd put a lot of time and effort into it, and I wanted to finish it. There have been some critics who have said that your time in office, you could have used sort of a heavier hand in applying the act. Was going out with a bang a response to those critics? No, no. In fact, that was a, a, an offhand comment. I don't know. It was sort of a joke, you know. Um, no. Uh, in fact, you know, I'll find contraventions where there are con contraventions, but I'm not going to make them up. Uh, they are what they are, and they come along when they come along. I think as Canadians and people in the media, we've learned a lot more about the Conflict of Interest Act that we might have known before. We're right. not an expert like yourself. but. One thing that struck me in, in watching the, this controversy unfold and the one with Bill Morneau is that the onus is on those who might be involved in a conflict of interest to sort of bring it forward to you. And I say that because, it, for example, in the Aga Khan instance, uh, it was the media that discovered it first and then mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. MP, you know, MPs made a complaint to you mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. uh, it, the same thing with the Bill Morneau controversy. Right. I'm wondering if you think there is any sort of gap in that process or if it needs to change. No, I think if, you know, there's a different kind of a role. The Auditor General, for example, has a different kind of role. He, he takes a certain, he's got a large, large staff and he goes out and uh, investigates different areas and does an audit. My office is not an audit office. My office is one that looks into things that, that come up, that are brought to my attention. Sometimes I see them myself, you know, I may become aware of them. Uh, and, but um, generally there's reporting requirements for the uh, public office holders and the members and uh, uh, that's when these issues should get raised if, they, if they're going to be raised. Um, but uh, no, I, I don't feel any uh, guilt <laughs> in not having uh, you know, a higher proportion of, of finding of contraventions. I don't like to use the word convictions because it's not a criminal case. Um, uh, no, I think it's appropriate that I find contraventions when there are contraventions and not make them up when they're not. And let me ask you about that because in the past, in 2013 for example, I mean you, you've talked often about how you apply the act, you, you interpret the act as it is, mm -hmm. but you have made recommendations to strengthen the act that were not implemented by the previous government right. or this government. I've made many, many recommendations. Many. I think it's a 94-page report in 2013. Yeah. Yeah. What do you make of the fact that no government has implemented them? Well, I think they just had other priorities they'd rather deal with. I mean, than their own ethical. Well, I, that's what it would appear. I mean, uh, they made a you know they they looked at my recommendations, but in fact the report was not a great one that, that they came out with. It a lot of it didn't have to do with the recommendations that had been brought. 
and um, it, it got some uh, negative comment from the other parties uh, at the time that their report came out. And um, I, it's unfortunate, but that's what happened. Were you disappointed that the political will wasn't there at the time? Well, you know, I think it takes a certain number of years. Like, this was a new piece of legislation that the previous government actually brought in. It was their first piece of legislation, as a matter of fact. And I know that Mr. Harper felt quite strongly that it was important. Uh, but um, only five years had gone by. The interesting thing is there's only one mandatory five-year review of the Act. There's a five-year, every five-year review of the code for M MPs. But So this was their one chance, but I believe they're going to be looking at it again next month. That's what they're saying. Is it a bit rich that now all these MPs who are somewhat critical of the deficiencies of the Act didn't, didn't change it when they could? Well, um, it wasn't their priority, I guess. There was a, a long period between uh, uh, when the proposals went in, too, and when it was ultimately dealt with, and particularly with the code. There was a number of years that went by. But in fact, they did make a number of amendments to the code. Uh, just before the last government went out, they, they brought in about eight or ten amendments, and they were good. But there are some recommendations you made in 2013, for example, around uh, whether shares or, or um, yeah, shares are held indirectly or directly, oh, which yes. would have directly impacted yes. what happened with Bill Morneau, yes. that if implemented, might have made that controversy non-existent. Um, I don't know that it might have made one of the controversies non-existent, but there were several controversies there. Uh, but um, and once I had put the recommendation in that they make that change, I, there's no way I could sort of interpret it the other way. And uh, I, did, I did a lot of uh, investigating of other legislation, and almost all other legislation of the same type has direct or indirect, and this one did not. It just said holding, and so I, I figured my interpretation was correct, and it was just, uh, they just decided not to follow that. But they didn't follow any of the recommendations, so it wasn't particularly pitted at not following that one, I don't think. So let me ask you, you, you say that you think there's a will now to update the Act or to, to strengthen... It, it sounds like it. Yeah. If you were to, to pick one recommendation that you think would be oh, the most important to implement going forward, what would it be? You know, it's hard, it's hard for me to say. Um, I, just, I was just saying in the committee earlier this, this afternoon that I, I think the uh, exception for friends is, is, creates problems in the, uh, in the gift provision, for example, whether that exception is there or not. Uh, the rule reasonably seen to have been given to influence would achieve the same purpose, I think. Without that exception, it would be less confusing. Um, but, you know, I think that the one that's come to light, the things that hit the, the public eye are the ones that are easiest to get changed, and I think the direct-indirect is probably one they could move with right away. Uh, there's post-employment reporting obligations I thought would be useful, uh, because there's rules on post-employment um, prohibitions, but nobody has to report what they're doing. Uh, I think there could be some, uh, a little bit of reporting by non-reporting public office holders. Uh, they don't have to report uh, gifts or anything like that. Um, that's a couple. I, I, you know, it's hard to it's remember hard to them pick. all. There's been so many. Do you think, or in your recollection, has there been a time when ethical considerations are more significant for people who hold public office? There was a time before when it was more significant? Is, no, is this the time? I mean, the, the level of public scrutiny the level of interest in, yeah. in, in hypocrisy, in the idea of, of gaining by holding public yeah. office. Have you seen it ever like this before? Well, it increases, but you know, it's been a, a developing field. Uh, only in the last 20, 
30 years did we start to have ethics rules like this. And I must say as well, Canada is at the forefront. I mean, our, our rules are, are very good compared to the rest, most of the rest of the world. Um, so, um, you know, it, it's a moving field. It, we will continue to have refinements, I think. But um, uh, I think the act is really not all that bad. There's just lots of improvements that could be made. What is your advice to <laughs> your successor? Just see the course, I think. I mean, uh, when I came in, the office is quite different now from the way it was. I made, a, I think, a number of improvements to the office. I established a specific investigations unit. I established a specific legal unit and a specific communications unit. All of, none of those were there when I came in. So I think the office is actually in very good shape right now. It's got a good staff. I, uh, it's got um, lots of experience. There's, 10 years worth of precedents now that can be drawn upon. Lots of guidelines that have been produced and guidelines are always good. So um, I'd just say stay the course. Is there anything you would have done differently? Not that I can think of. I really feel that I've, I've done a pretty good job basically. I think that I've, I've uh, tried to do my best and uh, uh, applied myself to it and tried to be uh, careful with my decisions. and. Uh, and to be open with, uh, with people. I've, my annual reports are, are quite fulsome and I uh, explain, sometimes I've got a unit called um, Matters of Note and I'll explain things that particularly that happened in a particular year that are, are worth noting and uh, no, I think, um, I, I really think I'm doing okay, I had been doing okay. <laughs> and to the people who say your office should have more teeth, your response? Well, I don't know if that means I should have, uh, you know, penalties, uh, um, imprisonment, or or big fines or something. I'm actually not a believer in big fines for these kind of uh, contraventions. I think um, the fact that they're made public, the fact that the public notices, the pa fact that uh, uh, the the contravention is highlighted, I think is important. I think it's for the electorate and, and to decide in the long run how they how they think people have performed. I don't think the penalties would, would play a big part, or they don't need to. Big, extensive penalties belong in the criminal domain. The, the American system, for quite a few uh, things in the fraud area and stuff, have penalties. As we do, you know, once we get into the criminal area, I have to hand it over to criminal authorities. And, so uh, the Prime Minister, in your view, didn't commit a crime? Because no, somebody no. asked him the other day. It's a contravention. I used a different term, contravention or offense. And, and contravention is... Uh, is when you've done something that isn't a criminal level. Yeah. Okay, understood. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for your time. I well, appreciate thank you. it. And good luck in retirement. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thanks for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, you can head to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.